I want to tell you a true story about a lady named Elizabeth Kilcher. Elizabeth lived and still does in the suburbs of St. Louis, Missouri. She's married, she has two young boys, and on this particular evening, her husband had come home, had supper, he had to go to church for a meeting. It's about dusk, and Elizabeth is washing the dishes in her kitchen, obviously. There's a window in front of her, and through that window she can see a small front yard where her husband has done some neat landscaping work, so she's admiring that while doing the dishes. And right beyond the small front yard is a street. I mean, she's in the middle of a row of houses. There's another row on the other side of the street. All of a sudden, she hears the screeching of brakes and metal, which she knows is going to be one car crunching into another, that takes place at an intersection to her right, just two houses down. So obviously, she leans over and looks. What she saw was two men getting out. Uh, The front car, the one that got rear-ended, has a young man... We might even say, you know, an older boy, a youth, get out, 18 or 19 years old, baggy pants, graphic t-shirt. So he starts walking back. Second car, the one that did the rear ending. Um, I was going to say an old guy got out, but he was about 50, and I'm 51, so we're not going to call him old. (laughs) An older guy than the young guy gets out of the car that did the rear ending. He's got khaki, long pants, some kind of a denim shirt. And she could tell immediately they started arguing, accusing each other of being at fault. And she could sense with her motherly instinct that things were ramping up. They're getting dialed up. So she told her two boys, go in the living room, watch our favorite TV show. It's about to start. I'll be back in a few minutes. She heads out the front door. The boys, being boys, (laughs) wait for a minute. Then they go out the front door and they watch on the porch to see what's going to happen. So as she got closer, Elizabeth could hear profanity, threats. um, And what she sensed was, especially with the younger man, that there was an intensity and a harshness to his verbal counterattack to the older guy. Well, sure enough, what, what happened was something that dialed it way up the older guy decided to say a derogatory statement about the younger guy's mother, whom, of course, the older guy doesn't even know. But from his stock or inventory of insults, the older guy pulls one out and just slaps the young guy verbally with this insult to the young guy's mother. And Elizabeth, now maybe five feet away, could tell this flipped a switch in the young guy. I mean, if there's a switch that says, now we get physical, now we get violent, Uh, We're going to come in contact with each other. It flipped that kind of a switch. But instead of the young guy attacking the older guy, Elizabeth saw, he turned and went to his car and opened the door, one of the back doors. So again, that great motherly instinct. She thinks, oh man, I bet you he's going to get a weapon. Sure enough, he comes out with this big baseball bat. So Elizabeth, at this point, decides, I'm going to intervene in this thing. Now, A quick little aside here before I go on with this true story. I don't know that I would advise my wife Carla to do that kind of a thing. I think if she called me at home alone, said there are two guys about to go for it in front of our house, I think I would say, lock and double bolt the door, call the police. 
But this lady, Elizabeth, must have some great special gifting for parenting uh, as well as leading and intervening uh, and helping younger men. So she puts herself in between the two guys. The young man's coming with the bat. She stands and puts her, her hands out, not to push him, but to stop him. Sure enough, he comes up against those two hands and stops. Here's what she says. Son, I don't know you, but you don't want to ruin your life by assaulting the likes of this guy. The young man, angry tears are forming, veins in his throat, they're popping out. He's completely tensed up, and he says to Elizabeth, you don't understand. He just said something about my mom that I can't, it's not true, I can't stand it. He has to pay for what he just said. He has to pay for what he just said. And Elizabeth said, I know I heard him, but his childish behavior doesn't give you the right to physically assault him. Look at him. He's acting like an irresponsible child. Please don't do this. Well, the older guy kind of takes insult at Elizabeth saying this about him. So he says, lady, what business is this of yours? And she says, without missing a beat, see those two boys on that porch? I'm their mother. Those are my boys and I will not have you invade their life with vulgarity and violence, the kind of things you're saying. So the big guy has a little rebuke, but he decides, oh, now I'll turn back to the younger guy, and he says, hey, what are you going to do with that bat? Are you afraid to do something with it? So the young guy tenses up again. He's going to go for it. Elizabeth once again has to say something. So she says, listen, you're a mother whom you're defending would tell you to back off, to not attack this idiot because he's not worth it. You don't want to throw away your future on him, do you? And she used everything she could, you know, tone of voice, facial expressions, to plead with this young man, don't do what you're about to do. The young man sees in Elizabeth's eyes the eyes of his own mother. And he backs down. Goes back, sits in the driver's seat, plops himself down, waits for the police. Elizabeth turns to the older guy, rebukes him for a few sentences, then goes, has this younger guy roll down his window. She talks with him more. She finds that he's got a whole different set of emotions now. And now he says to Elizabeth, ma'am, thank you so much for what you did. I am sure I would have killed that man. I'm sure I would have killed him. Thank you for stopping me. She talks with him, finds out that his name is Kevin, and this is what she learns. Here's the kicker. Kevin's mother had just died a few weeks ago after a prolonged illness. And here's this older guy attacking his mother. He just couldn't stand it. He broke. So the story doesn't end there. Elizabeth again has this great special gifting of God to help intervene where there is some kind of a need. So even after the police have come and ticketed the older guy and long after they've gone, she talks with Kevin. She finds out that he works at a grocery supermarket not too far from where they live. And so she tells her husband, we're going to start shopping for groceries there. So every time they come, she can encourage Kevin, say hello to him. Kevin gets in the practice of taking their groceries out at the end of every shopping trip. Now, he doesn't need to do that. She's got her husband with her, got carts anyway, but he does it for the pretense of talking with them for a minute or two. And every time before they leave, Either Elizabeth or her husband says a brief prayer for Kevin. 
Now, here's why I tell you that story. I think what she did in that instance is exactly what Paul is telling Timothy and Titus to do. You guys have got to get in the middle of things. You've got to get mixed up in things in your church. Sometimes you're going to have to turn to somebody and rebuke them and call them an idiot. And other times you're going to have to use compassion and concern and say, please don't do what you're about to do. It's the wrong thing. Turn away from it. Come with me and worship Christ instead. Well, the books that we're in today are 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. If you have a Bible, please find 1 Timothy. These three books technically go by the name Pastoral Epistles. They're called pastoral because they're written to pastors. Timothy and Titus are pastors of churches. And epistle is an old English word for letter. Uh, What I'm going to call them is leadership letters. In part because they're not just written to pastors. They're written to deacons and even older men and women. And in a sense, they're written to all of us. So we're going to call these leadership letters. However, it might be good if you like taking notes to write down pastoral epistles. Because if you were to Google this on the web, that's the term you'd want to use. If you wanted to find more of an introduction to these three letters, you wouldn't say leadership letters, you would say pastoral epistles. Probably wouldn't even have to say New Testament after that. Probably just pastoral epistles, summary or intro would get you there. So as a congregation, I think you guys know unless you're new and visiting, we're finishing up this month our 90 days, three months, listening to the New Testament. If you're visiting today or have visited now for just a couple weeks, man, you can join us in this. Start in with us, even though we've just got a couple weeks left. Pick up one of these guides at the Information Center, download some audios, start listening even today as today we wrap up these leadership letters. One author said it this way, Paul in these three letters, is trying to strengthen his right and left hands, meaning Paul and Timothy. He's appointed them, he's trained them, he's going to continue investing in them by the writing of these letters. So, let's start into our outline. If you like taking notes, we're going to start into that right now. These letters... 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. They're like a character model sheet. Now, what in the world is a character model sheet? Well, let me show you an example. A character model sheet is a character or a cartoon or an action figure guy or lady. And the character model sheet has two or three poses where they're pretty much standing straight up. Front view, profile, They're done as a template so that when they want to put this guy, we all know this is Batman here, into action, into a story, they can look at this and then put the body into different poses. So this is a model that people use. And what I'm going to say today is that Paul himself is a model for these two guys. And his books, these three, these three letters are models, they're templates, just like this up on the screens, for us as a church in terms of leadership, organization, even mutual accountability. So modeling, that's going to be big in these three letters. 
But let's do a little review from last week. Um, Last week, here's one of the principles that I went through. When reading New Testament letters, look for key words in or right after the opening. And look for the kind of letter. So I said there were three main kinds of letters that Paul wrote. You can extend that to the other letters of the New Testament after Paul as well. Either a responsive letter. Paul is responding to a problem or some questions that come up. So something's come to him first. He's writing in response. Or a teaching letter. Teaching letter has much more organization. Not really in response to something. It's Paul saying, I need to teach you some stuff. And then there's an encouraging kind of letter. Which is really neither responding to a problem nor saying... I need to give you a long doctrinal explanation of a few things. But just a letter written to encourage. And by the way, as parents, we do all three of these with our kids. Unfortunately, life sometimes is a lot more the responsive teaching than the systematic teaching or the encouragement, but we do all three from time to time. Well, last week I talked about openings, so we're going to look at some openings in these three letters. First Timothy, you should have it open if you've got a Bible, We're going to look right after the opening, which means verse 3. So, like we saw last week with many letters, it's right after the opening, meaning the first part, first verse or two, of the main part, the main body of the letter. And in 1 Timothy, it's verse 3. Paul says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now, this is the first thing, again, that Paul says after his greeting, his opening. And based on this, I think we might begin to surmise this is a responsive letter. There are some guys teaching different doctrine at Ephesus, and Paul is saying, Timothy, you've got to deal with this. So we're going to say 1 Timothy is a responsive letter. Timothy, your responsible for protecting the church, for guarding, passing on this gospel that has been entrusted to you. I also think 1 Timothy is a teaching letter. So in responding to these men promoting bad doctrine, Paul will lay out, almost as if it's a manual for Timothy, how he can appoint leaders and promote good, healthy community in a church. So, Uh, Let's see what comes after the opening in 2 Timothy. So flip forward a few pages. We're going to do the same thing with 2 Timothy. See what kind of book this is, even though all three are leadership letters. 2 Timothy, we'll look at verse 3 and 4. Paul says, I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. Now, do we see any problem that Paul's trying to address here? Is he talking about any kind of conflict or tension? No. He's encouraging Timothy, his son, so to speak, in the faith. So from these two verses alone, we'd think an encouraging letter, and we'd be right. Uh, let's look a little further in that same chapter. So, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses uh, 6 and 7. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, 
which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So, man, this is really Paul encouraging Timothy. He says, Timothy, let me remind you, you've got a gift. The gift came from God. He gave you that gift. Let me remind you, you and I have a relationship. I laid hands on you and appointed you to the ministry. And let me give you a loving warning. Be bold. Don't be timid. All of that's encouragement. So let me do one more thing with 2 Timothy. And that is uh, give you a list, a partial list actually, of the commands or the imperatives that Paul gives Timothy. Now this is kind of a neat exercise. You can do this yourself with any of the letters. Meaning, go home. Find the whole letter of fill in the blank, in this case, 2 Timothy, on the web, print it, take a highlighter, and read through it. Every time you come across a command, highlight it. And then go back and read through all that you've highlighted because you've isolated out the things that Paul is telling Timothy or whatever author of that letter is telling the audience to do. Like later we'll talk about isolating out little doctrinal nuggets, but for now, here are some of the commands that Paul gives Timothy by way of encouraging him. So, some of what Paul says. Fan into flame the gift of God. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 6. Do not be ashamed. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We're in chapter 2 now. Here's another command. What you have heard from me, entrust to faithful men. A little bit later, remind them of these things. A verse later, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Later in chapter 2, and the Lord's servant, Paul means you, Timothy, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Here's one from chapter 3. As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. And here's one from chapter 4. Paul says to Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So, just from what I've given you, you can see um, Paul encouraging this guy, Timothy. Now, we're ready for Titus, so flip forward a few pages. Let's look at the opening, or actually what comes right after the opening in the book of Titus. The greeting of the opening is verses 1 through 4, so we're going to start at verse 5. Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now this, to me, could be either responsive or teaching. Is Paul responding to the need for leaders and he says to Titus, you need to get going on this? Or is he about to teach Titus about this kind of thing? Not quite sure at this point, but look at verse 10. So a little bit further into Titus. Chapter 1. There are many who are insubordinate, 
empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain that which they ought not to teach. So, I think primarily Titus is a responsive letter. There's some problem in the church there, but it's also a teaching letter. So it's like 1 Timothy, responsive in teaching. 2 Timothy, we said, was going to be an encouraging letter. Now, we've seen what kinds of letters these are. They're leadership letters. They're written to leaders. They're written about leading and leadership. And by the way, that should be to all of us. Yes, we have leaders with titles, but in some sense, all of us should be leading. Men or women, young or old, maybe you've been a Christian for two months. You can still have coffee with someone and lead them into an understanding of what the gospel is. Coffee can be leading two people, you and somebody else. So there are principles here we can all glean from. And we've seen two responsive and teaching letters, one Second Timothy, very much an encouraging letter. So in the remaining time, I want to show you how Paul does modeling. I'm going to go back to that picture of a model character sheet. Uh, Paul uses, number one, his own life as a model. And he does this in a number of verses. So Paul is saying, in essence, I'm a model for you. As I follow Christ, you follow me. So he wants to share with these two guys he's mentoring from his own life. First way he does that is that he talks about his past. So one way Paul models is from his past. God's grace shown to him from his past. Look back to 1 Timothy. And let me read to you from chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Here's what Paul says. I thank him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That is clearly Paul looking back and saying, God was gracious to me. Part of what he's doing, I mean, it's all intentional, it's all strategic, is to say to Timothy, let me encourage you by this. You should encourage other people by looking at your past, how God has been gracious to you. Second way that Paul does this is with his present, which means his suffering. So for Paul, a lot of his present ministry, as he writes to Timothy and Titus, has to do with suffering. Let me read to you some of how Paul looks at his present and encourages, in this case, Timothy, with his present ministry and circumstance. So, I think we're going to stay in 2 Timothy here, so flip forward to 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 12. Paul says a few words into verse 12, but I am not ashamed... For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. Now, is that modeling or what? In the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit 
entrusted to you. Same book, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. Paul says this. For which I am suffering, he means the gospel, he's suffering because of the gospel, bound with chains as a criminal. In 2 Timothy, Paul has been put in jail, and he writes to Timothy from being in jail, that's what he means there. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, verse 10, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. A little bit later in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, Paul is once again going to talk about his suffering. But in essence, say to Timothy, you'll suffer too. It's worth it. Chapter 4, verse 6. Paul says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Paul thinks that death is in the not too distant future for him. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Obviously, he's telling Timothy, man, you do the same thing. Follow me as I follow Christ. And one more passage, same chapter, chapter 4, later in verse 16. Paul says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And we would say today, here and now, also with Paul. Amen. So he models from his past, looking at God's grace, his present, He models from his ministry as well. Two verses here. His ministry is the gospel. Same book, 2 Timothy. Chapter 2, verse 2, a verse that many of you will know and have heard before. Paul says, chapter 2, verse 2, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And there's another verse, 2 Timothy chapter 3, one more chapter forward, starting at verse 10. This is a longer passage, but man, it's great about how Paul says, let me show you my ministry and encourage you. So chapter 3, starting at verse 10, Paul says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be, does he say rescued? Always from physical harm? No, he says persecuted. While evil people and imposters, they go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Paul speaking to Timothy, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. One thing Paul is referring to here is 
not just him as a model, but Timothy's mother and grandmother that were godly examples to him. We'll talk about this a, a little bit later, but they're mentioned earlier in this book. So Paul models from his life. There's a second way in which Paul models. Paul models the use of scripture, the use of doctrinal and gospel nuggets. So I'm borrowing Ryan's term here of a, of a nugget, meaning a brief, like one or two verses, sometimes just a phrase of doctrinal or gospel truth. Now, I've put the main ones in your bulletin notes. Man, you should go home and read those out loud. Listen to them. Let me give you some examples here of what Paul is doing with these two guys and what I think we should do with others. Go back to 1 Timothy. Let's look at an example, just one from each book. 1 Timothy Three, chapter 3, verse 16. This is a doctrinal gospel nugget. Paul says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, Believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Let's go to 2 Timothy, see an example there. 2 Timothy chapter 2, looking for a gospel or a doctrinal nugget. Paul's putting a bunch of these in these three letters. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse, starting at verse 11. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Every line of some of these has a truth that needs to be told, learned, studied, possibly even memorized. An example from Titus. Flip forward to Titus. The example here is going to be in chapter 3, Starting at verse 4. Paul says to Titus, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So, do you see what Paul's doing? He's given these nuggets to encourage them, to remind them, and I think to teach them, you guys should be doing the same thing. Memorize, carry around with you some brief scriptural passages, maybe some lyrics from some of the songs we sing here on Sunday morning. Use those in conversation and in your own prayer life and in your counseling. All right, final way that I think modeling is taking place. We've seen Paul models from his own life. He models the use of doctrinal and gospel nuggets. Third, he uses models from the past, by which I mean other people. Uh, There's one neat thing about 2 Timothy, and that is that every chapter, there are four chapters, every chapter in 2 Timothy has a pair of names, a pair of people, side by side mentioned. In fact, Paul uses this in 1 Timothy as well, a 
pair of names, but not every chapter. And these are all going to be models. Two are going to be good ones. Timothy, be like these people. Two are going to be bad ones. Timothy, you got to get rid of these people in your church. Confront them to repent or get them out of there. One of the two. So I'm not going to talk about all four, but let me go through the list of the four. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, in that chapter, the pair is Lois and Eunice, and those are the mother and grandmother of Timothy. They're commended by Paul. In chapter 2, it's two guys named Hymenaeus and Philetus. Those are going to be bad examples if you read about them. In chapter 3, there are a pair of guys. We would look at the spelling and say Jonas and Jambres. And in chapter 4, it's Prisca and Aquila who are going to be back to a good example. Now, we're going to look at only one of these as an example. You can look at the other three on your own. So in chapter 3, verse 7, we read about these two guys whose names start with J. Chapter 3, verse 7, I'll start reading there. Paul says, There are people who are always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and John Brace opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Catch those last few words? They're a model, they're an example, they're an illustration. These guys in your church that are causing problems their folly will become plain in time and their end is going to be like these two guys in the days of Moses. So let me tell you about these two guys because this is what would come up in the minds of the people Paul's writing to. Of course, he's writing to Timothy, but Timothy's going to stand up and read this to the church. They're all going to hear this letter from Paul. And they're going to know these guys from the book of Exodus. Um, I'm going to give them nicknames because these names are kind of hard to pronounce. So we're going to call them Jan and Jam. So Jan and Jam are names that you actually won't find anywhere else in the Bible. So if you do a concordance search, you're only going to pull up 2 Timothy chapter 3. We know from Jewish writings that are historical writings that these are the names of the chief magicians in Pharaoh's court when Pharaoh was confronted by Moses. And apparently what Paul is saying is this history is accurate. There really were two historical guys, Jan and Jam, Moses' chief magicians that he put against Pharaoh's chief magicians that Pharaoh put against Moses and Aaron when they came to confront Pharaoh. So let me summarize for you Exodus chapters 7, 8, 9. Because again, this is what they're going to think, the people hearing this, in the days of Paul and Timothy. Exodus chapter 7, Moses and Aaron... Meet Pharaoh. Aaron's got this staff, this big, nice honking stick. So you're fine if you think of Charlton Heston, Ten Commandments, or Cartoon Prince of Egypt. Both of those are really pretty accurate um, for the most part. He's got this big stick. Aaron puts the stick down, and it becomes, you tell me, what? It becomes a snake. The magicians, Jan and Jam put their sticks down, they also become snakes. But Aaron's serpent eats the other two, or there might have been three or four, we don't know. Now, what's happening here? Well, for one, we don't 
exactly know. We don't know for sure, right, exactly what's happening. This is my guess. Here's what I think. I think Aaron's stick was really a wood stick and that miraculously, breaking the laws of nature, which God, of course, can do, it became a real snake. I think, I don't have any basis for this, I don't think in scripture or in science, but I think that the magicians were not producing miracles. They certainly weren't producing miracles from God's perspective. And from what we read, there actually was a trick in which you could take a snake, make it long, and make it stiff, and do something. I don't know if you wrap its head or, or you're probably camouflaging its eyes to make it look like a stick a little bit. Or if you sprinkle some powder on it, I don't know, but it can come to life. Or back to life because it's kind of hibernating. Now, I don't have the hardest time believing that because I've got to tell you about my friend Steve in Virginia. Now, Virginia has these things called basements, so I need to explain what those are to you. <laughs> a basement is a lower level below the ground. You got it? And if you want to get light in there, if it's all underground, you dig a little bit on ground level from outside the house and make a little window well. So it goes down a few feet, um, and you've got your window there, which is kind of raised up when you're in the basement looking at the window. So Steve had a basement. It was not heated. I mean, why waste the money on electricity? And he kept a lizard down there, which I kid you not, was two to three feet long. I mean, a big lizard. Kept it in an aquarium, no water, of course. Had a little heat lamp on there so the lizard could make it through the winter, sub-zero temperatures. And, And because lizards don't do that much, they're not like our dogs and cats. They just sit there most of the time. Steve didn't go down and play with the lizard every day. He's just gonna give it some food, Yeah, the lamp's there. I'll check on it seven days from now. So, unfortunately, the lizard decided to pop open the lid, crawl out, crawl up some bookshelves and junk, and find a little bit of nice sun peeking through the trees around their house through that window on the windowsill. Well, unfortunately, night came and sub-zero temperatures came, and the lizard froze. He froze while he was laying out, completely laid out was not discovered by Steve till about two or three days later. <laughs> so Steve goes down to check on his lizard, and he's not in the aquarium. Where is he? He's up there at the window. I wonder if he's okay. He doesn't move. Steve said he could literally take the tail and wave the lizard like a bat. It was that stiff. <laughs> Put the lizard somewhere. I don't know if it would fit back in the aquarium, being elongated like that. But he slowly warmed the lizard up, and guess what? Lizard was fine. No problem at all. Some kind of hibernation state. So that's my guess as to what happened. My point is this. From appearance, just on the outside, it would seem that the magicians are doing the same thing that Aaron is doing, except for the end in which Aaron's snake eats theirs. So you'd say, well, you know, God won a victory there, but it was kind of close. It wasn't really decisive because it, for appearance sake, it seemed to be pretty equal for a little bit. The key is you've got to read through the next two chapters of Exodus, 8 and 9, not just 7. When God, through Moses and Aaron, does the first few plagues, the Egyptian magicians, Jan and Jam, are able to imitate on some level what's happening. Now, the further we get into the 10 plagues, the more that it's clear that God is doing miracles and they are not. Uh, For one thing, Moses can say exactly when the plagues start or stop. Do you remember that? He says to Pharaoh in one plague, you tell me when it'll stop, because this is from God, and I'll stop it to prove to you this is not a natural phenomenon. And so Pharaoh says, well, how about like right now, not 
three days from now. Can you make it stop now? Moses says, yep. The plagues distinguished between Egyptians and Israelites, right? So there's some plagues that you hit a boundary, and that plague doesn't cross that boundary. Number of different reasons why these were miracles. Well, we hit the middle of the ten plagues, and the magicians cannot imitate them. This is like a second stage. That first stage, some level of imitation. Second stage, they can't imitate it. Here's the third and final stage, and this is the stage I love. I I smile and sometimes laugh every time I read this passage, and I think I'm supposed to. So let me read it for you. One of my favorite parts of the book of Exodus, you may think, wow, there's, Ron, there's not much there. This is not heavy doctrinal stuff here, but I love it. So this is going to be from Exodus chapter 9. Just listen to it. I think we'll have it on the center screen, starting at verse 10. So they... This is Moses and Aaron, took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it up in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. Now here's the great verse. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. So here's my picture of this, my imagination, my mind. These horrible sores have come on everybody, Egyptians. Pharaoh says, get Jan and Jam right now. This has got to stop. I remember a couple days ago, they were able to do something that was somewhat similar to what Moses and Aaron were doing. Get those two guys in my presence now. So the courtiers go, yes, sir, we will get them here right away. The courtiers come back 10 minutes later. They got their head down, they're dragging their tails, and they start mumbling through, uh, I'm sorry, first says, where are they? And the courtiers, the messengers say, they said they can't even get up from their beds because they've got the stinking worst hemorrhoids they have ever had in their lives. They can't move. They're all over their bodies, not just their backside. Uh, they're bleeding, and they're hurting. So Pharaoh's like, I-, I give up. I mean, if I can't even talk to my magicians, I give up. So you see the progression that God shows us? They do a little bit. They can't do anything. They're incapacitated. And Moses, Pharaoh says to Moses, you can go. Now, obviously, he takes his word back after a while. So let's cycle it back into Second Timothy. What God is saying is, you'll have people in your church, at least back then, that are divisive, not just in terms of gossip, they're teaching strange doctrine, doctrine that is different than the gospel of Jesus Christ. But know, Timothy, know that their folly will become plain. Just wait. Remember the Egyptians? At first they seemed like they had something going. All you had to do was wait, because God will be victorious. Their folly will become known. And they won't get very far. God will give them an end like, oh, what can I think of for an illustration here? Like Jan and Jam in the book of Exodus. You know what happened to them, right? Timothy would think, oh, yeah. I remember what happened to them. I'm glad I'm a follower of Christ and not a follower of Pharaoh or some idols or gods or goddesses. Because, yeah, I remember what happened to them. They couldn't even come when Pharaoh asked for them. 
So God, through Paul, says to Timothy, just rest in Christ, trust in him, be faithful. God will take care of people that preach a different gospel. So all of this great modeling is going on. Paul says, look at my life. Let me tell you about God's grace. I told you before, but you know what? I'll tell you again. Let me show you some doctrinal and gospel nuggets. You could share these with others. And let me show you some examples from the past and present, even from your own life, even your own mother and grandmother, that you should follow. Lead in the way God has gifted you, whether that means a title or not a title. Amen?